My name is Dr. Lawrence Hakim. I am Chairman of Urology at Cleveland Clinic, Florida. It's my privilege to moderate this exciting AUA Live 2020 panel discussion on Peyronie's disease management tips and tricks. On behalf of all the participants, I want to thank the AUA for allowing us this opportunity. It's my pleasure now to introduce our distinguished faculty of world-renowned urologic surgeons, Dr. Jesse Mills, Associate Clinical Professor of Urology and Chief of Andrology at the David Geffen School at UCLA, will be speaking on the role of collagenase clostridium histolyticum in the management of Peyronie's disease. Dr. Wayne Hellstrom, Professor of Urology, Chief of Andrology at Tulane University, will be discussing the role of intralesional therapy with Intron A in the management of Peyronie's. Dr. Billy Corden, Assistant Professor and Director of Urologic Reconstruction, Trauma and Prosthetics at the Columbia University Division of Urology at Mount Sinai Medical Center, will be discussing the role of plication surgery in the management of Peyronie's disease. Dr. William Brandt, a renowned urologic surgeon working at the Granger Medical Clinic and Salt Lake City Veterans Affairs Medical Center, will be discussing the role of surgical grafting in the management of Peyronie's. And finally, Dr. Raphael Carrion, professor and chairman of the USF Department of Urology, will be discussing the role of penile prosthetic surgery in the management of Peyronie's disease. Once again, I want to thank the AUA for this great honor, and I sincerely hope all of you viewers enjoy this presentation. Thank you. Great, Larry. Thanks so much for the, the nice introduction, and, and welcome everybody to our, our webinar here. I'm going to be talking about collagenase tips and tricks, a few disclosures there to go over. And so I, I broke this into plaque pearls. This is what I want us to take home from this, is how to select the appropriate patient how you're gonna do it, there are different techniques available. How can we get ourselves in trouble? What are the pitfalls? And then prognostication, how can we make this, this technique better since it's been approved for the last six or so years? In terms of patient selection, what you wanna do is you wanna work these men up with a history, know whether they're the, in the acute or chronic phase, and then decide whether or not they would be a candidate for this based on, on the, the length of duration they've had this condition. We also want a good physical exam. You have to be able to palpate the plaque to know what you're injecting. And then imaging is, is optional. I use it all the time. A lot of this is for academic purposes, but it does help me localize the plaque. And then we'll get into some more advanced imaging later. In terms of the right candidate for CCH, you need somebody uh, to remain on label that has a, a degree of curvature greater than 30 degrees. It can't be ventral, again, to stay on label. And they should have that the plaque that is easily palpable. There's nothing about whether or not you can inject somebody in the acute versus the chronic phase. There are, at least in the label and, and certainly in practice, and in fact, one of our, our colleagues on this webinar, Dr. Hellstrom, published that study a while back, and we have some data that are coming out as well that shows that the efficacy, safety, complication rates are all the same, whether or not you inject somebody that's had this condition for months or years. So don't let that be something that's gonna stop you from, from applying this technique. In terms of the technique itself, there is a standard injection technique which remains on label. There is something called the fan technique or when I was helping put these uh, slide deck together with my uh, older son, uh, college age guy, he said we should change this from fan to trident because that sounds a lot more uh, masculine. So, so fan or trident, whatever you want to use, essentially what I do that's different than the standard technique is I just spread the, the, the collagenase over the greater surface area. And what I found by doing that is as long as I'm feeling that density as I'm injecting, that I'm dispersing it, and I think, and not only do I think, but we were able to publish this last year, it does decrease the hematoma rate because you're not getting such a giant nuclear bomb of, of collagenase in a very finite area, but you're able to spread it out. And with that in mind, our complication rate went down pretty significantly. 
To that end, we did go ahead and characterize complications. And the reason for that is we want to know how to manage these people so that the, the practicing urologist, if they're faced with a complication, they can define it, we can standardize it for the literature, and most important, know what to do. And so after, after having defined this, a grade one hematoma is something that is less than a third of the penis, and I've never had to do anything physical, uh, anything surgical with a grade one hematoma. As long as I can palpate the plaque, I don't even let that man go home without doing his second injection in the cycle if it is injection number two. A grade two, sometimes it's it's significant enough it takes up two thirds of the penis. I can't feel the plaque, I will bring that man back. And a grade three is really the decision-making about whether or not you truly have a rupture or a grade three hematoma. And that's where I will bring in imaging. Uh, usually an ultrasound we can do in the clinic. And if I have any concern with the ultrasound, I'll go to MRI. With a grade three, again, I don't have to do anything surgical except for rarely if it hasn't gone away and it localizes, then I can do a, a bedside drainage with an 18-gauge needle. And then, of course, your corporal rupture, we all uh, know what to do with that, although the paradigm may be changing on that. I've had to date one corporal rupture, which I managed conservatively, and the man did well. One of the other things we look at in terms of patient selection is, should you be tackling these big plaques, and what happens when, you're, when you've done your eight injections and they still have residual curvature? So real quick run through our data on that. 79% of our men do well with one round of injections. There's a, there's a smaller subset of men, however, that do seem to respond well. So I would call these guys the poor responders. And if you look at our poor responders, and it's a small number out of 171 men, we had 15 that went on to two rounds. What you find is that you do still see a little bit of a linear regression and curvature. Uh, and again, these are in guys that didn't get a great response with that first round. So even though the change looks insignificant or less significant, I should say, it's still, these are men that didn't get a great response. So if a man is not a surgical candidate or, or another candidate for another therapy, there would be a reasonable thing to consider another round of, of Zyaflex. In terms of what we're looking at to make this better, when you think about the initial data from Zyaflex and the in vitro data, you will put a collagen plaque in a test tube and you will put collagenase in there, it disappears. So there, there is something that's lost in the injection technique or in the density of the plaque or in the in vivo conditions in which this drug acts. Whatever the case, one thing that I don't want to have as any uncertainty of is how I'm injecting and or rather where I'm injecting. And so to that end, we've come up with some, uh, some 3D phot photography to better visualize the penis and find this is something that Devon Walker, one of our outstanding medical students, was able to devise this program and model the penis so that you can get great 3D imaging and know exactly, this is obviously an hourglass of the dorsal curve, uh, when I am injecting that plaque, I have much better visualization, and we can actually print these out as well. What that looks like from model to bedside is this is an actual patient, uh, his, his penis in 3D that we can then take to the printer if we wanted to. Uh, but again, you see the, the resolution accuracy, and, and this, is, this is just a 3D standard camera that's used in architecture. It's used in, in multiple uh, different disciplines. We've just adopted it for use in uh, in humans. But what that allows us is for us to go back every single time uh, prior to injections to know exactly where I want to inject that plaque. And it's a little bit quicker uh, to do, or at least it will be. We're still obviously kinking or ironing out the kinks, but we we definitely are, are making progress in what, what things look like and uh, hoping to expand the future of the field a little bit. I think I stayed within time, so uh, we'll move on.
Thank you, Larry. I'd like to give a different slant on uh, therapies that are available. This is my case I'd like to present to you. This is a 56-year-old male who's suffered from Crohn's disease for two years. Uh, he gets a firm erection, but between him and his wife, he can't get it anymore properly. A duplex showed good erections, but a 70-degree dorsal left curvature. The patient is very fearful of surgery. He's a working man, and his insurance coverage has certain exclusions when it comes to sexual function, so he'll be mostly self-pain. We know the various treatments. Oral therapies have not been recommended by the ICSM or the AUA because uh, there's no efficacy documentation long-term. Both shockwave therapy and PRP has no quality scientific evidence for efficacy. Surgical options are very much out there, but you have to wait a year before you would do it with stable disease. And the most majority of patients are very fearful of surgical options and would initially prefer a minimally invasive option if possible. We know there's fiber proliferative conditions that exist in other fields of medicine. On the left, duplicates contracture, 10 to 15% of men have both a, a affliction on the hand and the penis, plantar fasciitis, and in the dermatology field, hypertrophic scars or keloids. I had the experience of working with a number of uh, dermatologists when I was at uh, University of California, Davis, and they were working on hypertrophic scars. We gave them a Peroni's plaque and they did studies with interferons and found that the antifibrotic activity uh, was very evident when it came to the Peroni's uh, fibroblasts, which were grown out in culture. I continued on this work at my institution at Tulane and did this both in vitro and in vivo. My first study in the early 1990s was involving 20 patients where it was single-armed, single no placebo controlled with 1 million units every two weeks. And surprisingly, we had significant subjective and objective beneficial results with this treatment. We moved on to then to a multi-center, single-blinded, placebo-controlled study with 10 different centers with men with at least a 30-degree curvature, the materials and methods as listed here showed half of our patients were placebo, half were treated with interferon alpha-2b. We gave an, an erection with a vasoactive agent, measured the curve plaque, and did IEFs, duplex dopplers, and the like. The same person measured each time. The placebo injection involved 10 mils of saline, and what we had was 5 million units of, uh, of interferon alpha-2b that was used in this circumstance and this is only six injections. Typically, I would give 12 injections. Uh, these are the results from that study that showed when it comes to the dark red, the, the, the interferon droop, so she did much better than the placebo arm and all of these different parameters. Uh, the only side effect that we had were initially were, uh, were, was flu-like symptoms, and we found the use of uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, namely Aleve, a few hours would mitigate this issue. So two, uh, 2 million units was used biweekly for 12 injections or six months on a number of different studies I did over the years. And we basically graded an improvement of 20% over uh, baseline as being subjectively and objectively a benefit. A number of follow-up studies that we did at our institution, you can see in Stewart, the top one here, where we did uh, 111 patients with dorsal plaques and 21 with ventral plaques. We see a 54% and 52% uh, improvement in both the dorsal and ventral improvements 
Likewise, a follow-up study by Yaffe showed a 67% improvement in a group of patients that were treated with interferon L2B. Uh, as we know, uh, as just mentioned, the collagenase has been available and improved since 2013. We can see a 17-degree curvature over the placebo arm in this treatment group. A number of different studies have been done uh, and they came out over the years. And surprisingly, if you look in non-parallel random control trials with alpha-2B interferon intralesionally, this demonstrated to be equally efficacious as far as the benefit improvement in these patients. Big issue here is the cost factor. And you can see the purchase of 10 million units of alpha-2B interferon is less than $400. And at the high end, this would be $75 of treatment. And you can see that the collagenase costs 3,200s, and this is 44 more times expensive than interferon alpha-2B if you were to purchase it. A study done by Goldstein and his group at University of California, San Diego, the VA there felt that the interferon was much too expensive. So the study was to initially apply the treatment with interferon to these patients on six monthly injections, and then proceed if they did not improve to the collagenase option. This once again involved the same methodology where patients would have an artificial erection, have a nerve block and have this administered every week. And results showed that 61 men entered in the study, 51 of them did not need to go on to the treatment with the uh, collagenase. The average improvement was 15 degrees. Remember, this is only six injections, which would typically we would give 12 injections. So the total cost, if you were to use interferon versus collagenase for these, this group of 153 injections, totals to about a half million dollars of savings when it comes to healthcare money. So I'd like to summarize by saying that alpha-2 interferon is not FDA approved, thus it's off-label, much like you administer bimix or trimix. In random control trials, interferon alpha-2b demonstrated to be equally efficacious as intralesional collagenase. There was equal benefit for both the dorsal and ventral plaques. When it comes to the AEs, the flu-like symptoms be mitigated completely by taking a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory four to five hours before the treatment. There is no evidence of significant pain, ecchymosis, or swelling. And this was very minimal compared to what you'd see with collagenase. And above all, this is very inexpensive. It's a cost-effective when it came to that. And we showed this, this is a big, big issue when it comes to patients or self-pay or the like. So in conclusion, intralesional alpha-2B interferon for the treatment of Peyronie's disease is a safe, efficacious, and cost-effective method for patients desiring a non-surgical alternative. Thank you. I'll be discussing peanut application. Uh, today, peanut application is used to treat a variety of deformities. It can be performed with a short operative time, is easy to learn, <clears throat> has a high success rate and a low cost relative to other treatment modalities, and can be performed with minimal morbidity. <clears throat> In 1965, Nesbitt described the elliptical excision of the tunica albuginia, uh, followed by a plication technique. Originally described for congenital cordy, this was then uh, popularized and adopted in the application of Peyronie's disease. Uh, multiple variations uh, have existed throughout the years. And then the modern era takes us to Tom Lu's 16-dot peanut plication. <clears throat> Originally, or traditionally, peanut plication has been reserved for uh, deformities of less than 60 degrees. Uh, however, in this series, Tom Lu describes treating patients uh, with severity ranging from 30 to 120 degrees. Uh, 
most of these patients underwent a degloving of the penis and then had eight pairs of inverted sutures to correct uh, the deformity. Then in two 2010, Dr. Alan Mori described his penoscrotoplication, which is a non-degloving plication of the penis, and my preferred technique for its decreased morbidity. Uh, you want to initiate by, of course, inducing an artificial erection with intracapnosal injection, and then you can make a, a small penoscrotal incision, uh, usually just off the midline of the ventrolateral penis on the side where you plan to place your correcting sutures. You want to dissect through the dartos, get down to the buck's fascia, where then you can place your plicating sutures. Uh, following each suture, you can then use your incision and slide it up and down along the shaft of the penis to place additional sutures. Uh, sutures are placed in an inverted mattress fashion, typically 15 to 20 millimeters apart, and they, mo they usually correct about five to eight degrees. Uh, following each suture, you want to re-examine the penis uh, to see which area needs additional correction, and oftentimes you'll find bulging in the tunica. <clears throat> this has been shown to successfully correct severe lateral deformities as seen here with a good outcome. It can also be used for dorsal plications. For dorsal plications, you can make a small proximal shaft incision. Uh, I oftentimes will place the incision a little bit lateral and rotate it to the dorsum of the penis. You then want to use blunt dissection just off the midline to allow a space for your suture uh, while you avoid the neurovascular bundle as shown in the figure. For ventral plications, it's important to use a Foley catheter to identify the urethra. And oftentimes in these instances, oftentimes in these instances, two incisions uh, can be useful, particularly in complex multiplanar deformities, such as that seen here. Uh, so you can see you have a nice outcome here uh, with the two incisions. Uh, your closure is usually performed in three layers, and you want to be sure to reach in and grab the retracted edges of the dartos. Uh, otherwise, you risk tethering the dartos as you close. Uh, we reviewed a series of 340 pin applications and found that only 2% presented with insufficient straightening. Uh, most failures presented early on. Any late presentations were usually due to progression of disease or new plaque formation. Um, <clears throat> some tips to prevent failures. Uh, you want to ensure that you have an adequate response to intracapnosal er uh, injection. A poor erection risks undercorrection of the deformity. Uh, so if needed, you should probably use, uh, you can use saline, saline and a butterfly needle uh, as you're placing additional sutures with some penile scrotal compression uh, to ensure an adequate erectile response. Oftentimes, uh, failures had an insufficient number of sutures placed. It's important that you correct along the entire deformity and not just the point of maximal curvature. Uh, and revisions, as I mentioned, oftentimes will require additional sutures. You want to place multiple sutures in parallel for a more precise correction with less tension on each suture. It's a similar concept to that of a suspension bridge where you have multiple points of fixation distributing the tension. Finally, when in doubt, start with proximal sutures and march your way up uh, in a methodical fashion as you correct the deformity. Uh, so in this particular case, this was a, a young gentleman with a congenital cordy who had undergone two previously uh, penile applications where too few sutures were used for his correction. You can see here with a small dorsal incision that we were able to correct the entire deformity uh, for a nice outcome.
Uh, and finally, uh, salvage pin application may be used if you have insufficient straightening following a pin application, as following a penile implant, uh, following failed collagenase injections or failed grafting procedures. Thank you. Welcome, and thank you all very much for having me. We're going to be talking about grafting here, some tips regarding grafting as a complement to the other modalities we've heard about earlier. This is my disclosure. So this tip is, of course, not specific to grafting, but the number one pick is to pick the right patient. In general, people often think of grafting implications as two alternatives to a similar patient, but I think that's not quite right. Uh, they're really apples and oranges. Now, the classic patient characteristics for a grafting procedure is as someone who has good erections, they have deformities that are not curvature in nature, or they have severe shortening, severe curvature. But I would say additional to this, you want a patient who's going to be very compliant with their post-operative instructions and who has realistic expectations. So here are just a couple of examples. You can see on the left, this kind of deformity is not curvature. There is no role really for plication here. Uh, this is gonna be grafting only. And the next picture is someone with a very severe curvature, but when given his options actually elected for uh, plication in this case. So I'd say this might be a relative indication for grafting, but certainly not absolute. In terms of managing those expectations, one thing is you need to manage the you need to look at the deformity yourself. Patients often will overestimate the curvature, underestimate the curvature, and so you need to see a picture if you think that it truly represents a representation of what that erection looks like at home. You may consider a Doppler study for vascular characterization before grafting, and I think that's very helpful. It is important to remember that grafting overall has lower rates of satisfaction than plication. Uh, in part, that is because of a higher perception of length loss, and there's also higher rates of erectile dysfunction. Patients may also come in with expectations about penile lengthening that are just not to be found. So how can you address the plaque? Well, first, you have to mobilize the neurovascular bundle, and you have to mobilize it widely so it's not under tension during the procedure. If you can cut the plaque, if it's soft enough to do so, that's a good idea, even if it's multiple incisions. However, a lot of these plaques in which you need grafting are quite calcified, and it can be difficult to cut them or impossible. It is not necessary to remove the entire plaque. You want to focus on the area of the maximum deformity, although you do need an area in which you can either sew in the graft, uh, if that's the kind of graft you're using, or place the graft over it. It is helpful not to get into the corporal tissue to avoid erectile dysfunction. Uh, I like to thin the plaque rather than fully removing it, and for the more calcified plaques, I like to use an oscillating orthopedic saw, like a bunion blade, in order to thin down the plaque. You want to think about your graft material. And without getting into the weeds here, some of the things to consider are the cost of the graft, uh, the rate of contracture, uh, how easy it is to use. And in the past, synthetics have been used, but I think that is really something that is passe at this point. I've listed some of the more common materials here, which include SIS, uh, the tutoplast human pericardium, uh, tacoseal, which is the equine collagen with the fibrillation thromboplast, as well as some autologous materials that have been used, uh, saphenous vein, buccal mucosa, and so forth. Now, the post-operative compliance is really, really important. I emphasize to the patients this is no different than many orthopedic surgeries in which the physical therapy is not optional, but is critical to the outcome of the case. 
Uh, I start a PDE5 inhibitor uh, quite soon after doing the grafting. I have them start massaging and stretching the penis at about two weeks. And then another two weeks after that, they start traction. Now, why is that important? I think there was a, a very nice paper that was uh, put out by Dr. Levine and his group at Rush. And if you look at the perceived length increase versus the measured length increase, whether using traction or no traction, you can see here that in the more darkly shaded uh, bars, and these are the ones where traction was used, the perception was an increase of 1.6 centimeters with uh, a measured length increase of a little less than one centimeter. Whereas from the perception without using traction, there's actually perception of length decrease at 2.6 centimeters, whereas using uh, whereas the measurement showed a fairly stable length. So I've tried to stay within my time and hopefully we'll catch up a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. I want to go ahead and um, thank the AUA and Dr. Hakeem. I'm going to go ahead and discuss a specific modality a little different than the previous ones we just heard, and that's the consideration of penile prosthetics in the patient suffering with Peyronie's disease. Now, I keep this slide. It's very symbolic. And the most important key take-home from this slide is when you talk about Peyronie's disease, the morphologic deformity is not uniform. There's great variance. And this variance plays a direct role surgically for that implanter when it comes time to try to dilate, try to go ahead and, and, and place both cylinders of a uh, penile prosthetic device. And this can play a huge, huge role in suboptimal outcomes. So this is something that we have to keep in mind when we discuss Peyronie's disease, especially in conjunction with penile uh, implantation. Now, I like to lump Peyronie's disease with all the various conditions that lead to fibrosis. This is a common theme discussed amongst uh, surgeons, especially focusing in this realm. And so you see Peyronie's listed on top, but really it's a constellation of conditions that lead to penile fibrosis. Now, what are the difficulties? I believe it starts with the most basic step in penile implantation, and that is dilation. Dilation can also be included with sizing because you're inserting something metallic, something straight, and something rigid to obtain those dimensions. And so you have to acknowledge some of the baseline risks. What are going to be those risks? Crossover, especially if that Peyronie's patient has a left or right curve deformity. Inaccurate sizing. You're also going to apply in, in routine fashion the odds of applying higher forces and sharper instruments in this kind of cohort uh, also increases. And so the risk of perforation will also rise. You need to be, uh, and you need to acknowledge and be educated on the various technique and options for managing not just the preoperative curve, but residual curve intraoperative. And what about what I like to call time delay pathology? There could be some suboptimal outcomes that don't become apparent until the postoperative period. And that's also disheartening. So what about the options? Well, also begins with the actual surgical approach. So you may be an infrapubic or penoscrotal surgeon. Typically, you may opt for a subcoronal or you may alter your normal standard incision for greater exposure or even multiple corporotomies. So already in this particular special cohort, you may be or may feel the need to adjust your standard template and your surgical technique. 
Now, what about the instruments? I cannot, uh, cannot underemphasize uh, or overemphasize, I apologize, the need to be familiar with everything on the buffet table of options when it comes to instruments utilized uh, during this kind of surgical procedure. I'm only going to show a couple imagery here, the cavertome, here, urethrotome, different physics in terms of what you're trying to get done, uh, but you need to know the tools of the trade, if you will. Here's just one still image of an individual that healed with an implant, referred to us. This patient had right curvature, <laughs> severe curvature, uh, um, and here you can easily predict that the risk would have been a distal right-to-left crossover. And it, it occurred. There are some published guidelines. There are some algorithms. I show here just one example. Again, what we use to guide uh, the urologist through the process of step-by-step -step, um, in terms of trying to reach the most optimal outcome. No slide uh, and no lecture would be complete without mentioning at least some of the most common techniques, such as intraoperative molding, uh, this contribution by Dr. Wilson, very user-friendly, easy to replicate, well-published, also shown in surgical atlas like this citation, and so I'm not going to belabor or show more. Concomitant procedures, for the sake of time, this is just plication, a modified Tom Lu dot plication, which we just heard earlier. You can achieve optimal outcomes, intracorporal strategies. I just go ahead and take the shear method because it shows a nice imagery of the intracavernosal strategies. You can incise, you can dilate, you can shatter, you can scrape. Uh, all these are variations of intracorporal strategies. And finally, you gotta know the product line. You gotta be aware that there are narrow models from both companies, especially in this country, both in inflatable and malleable uh, prototypes. For, this, for the sake of time, I'm gonna skip on this video. Uh, in conclusion, knowledge is power. You gotta know your tools, you gotta know the risks, and you gotta know when to abort. Thank you very much. Thank you.